0: Well, if you've been with us the last couple of Sundays, you know that uh, through these Sundays in January, I've been attempting to lay out a proactive agenda on what it means to grow intentionally into likeness. And we began the first two weeks with using organic images of growth, if you recall. in My first message, I said that in order to grow into becoming more and more like Christ, which is what we see as the goal of the Christian life, we have to have a vision have to have a compelling picture of what we can and want to become. To repeat the words of John Ortberg, no one can be a disciple or follower of Jesus because they think they should. You actually have to want it. And we said that that want to was this beautiful picture of vision of a succulent life in Christ around the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. That's what God wants to grow in us. And wouldn't we all want to have those qualities coming out through our life? But healthy fruit needs soil, good soil, in which to grow. The ground has to be prepared or the condition of the soil treated so that that succulent fruit is a natural byproduct of that healthy soil. So last Sunday, we looked at the parable of Jesus of the sower and the seed. And we noted that there were three types of soil that did not produce a bumper crop, and only one type of soil that produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I said that this parable was really all about the ability to listen. To hear and allow the word to sink into our own hearts. And as Jesus described it in that parable, there were three types of soil that gets in the way of really listening. I called it the hurried heart, the divided heart, and the shallow heart. Got in the way of our listening. But there was one kind of heart that was fruitful, and that is the the listening heart, where the word can sink in and we can then start to hear more clearly. And so we talked last week about the practices that you can enter into to put yourself in a position to listen more clearly and carefully. Today, we shift our focus to the location of growth, the transformation of our minds. Since our minds are the filter through which we see life, The transformation of the mind is the location, the place where the growth takes place. So let's look at some scriptures this morning that identify, especially out of Paul's letters, the mind as the location of growth. This morning, instead of you reading along on the screen, allow me to read the scriptures to you since we're going to be moving to four different places in the Word of God, and then we'll pick them up as we go through the teaching this morning. Start this morning at uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. and Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Put your mind on these things. And then we'll turn our attention to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you shall also appear with him in glory. And then a primary text this morning that I'll be referring to comes out of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Familiar words. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then a very short verse out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23. Paul says that we are to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Our scriptures start with an assumption this morning. The assumption is we have work to do. To be in Christ is to bring our thinking in line with the reality of God's revelation of himself in Christ. And the scripture says that each one of us, frankly, is a reclamation project. God is in the salvage business, and he's here to salvage us from the ways that we have been thinking. During my growing up years, I watched a dramatic transformation take place. Shoal Canyon in Southern California, where I grew up, uh, was a gorge which trash trucks came each day to unload their rotting garbage and human discards. Yet in my 20s, I played golf on that very same site. It had been transformed from a stinking landfill into this beautifully manicured green playground overlooking the San Fernando Valley in the Los Angeles Basin. But once the ravine was filled to capacity, they changed it from a refuse depository into a new creation. Or should I say, a place of re-creation. So Paul first asserts the need for transformation of our minds. His language of transformation, I think, is really quite informative here. i can do a little technical work with you for a moment. In Romans 12, 2, we read, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed to, by the renewing of your mind. We hear the word conform, and we hear the word transform, and the root of each is a different word in the Greek language. The root of the word conform is the word schema, from which we get the English word scheme. and simply means... Outward, changeable form. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, Paul says. In other words, don't be like a chameleon that just fits into the flora and fauna and becomes indistinguishable from your surroundings. Phillips, in his translation, said, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But he says then, in opposite of that, in contrast to that, be transformed. And the root of the word transformed is different from the root of the word conformed. The root of conform is schema. The root of transformed is morphe. Sound familiar? <laughs> a word that we use in our English language for computer-generated images, right? An image of a man is morphed into the image of a woman. The real Greek word here is the word metamorphosis. And it has to do with the interchangeable character within. That we are to have a new you on the inside. Where schema is that outward Changeable form, this is the inner unchangeable form that is supposed to form in our lives. And it's a dramatic change. You think of the word metamorphosis like a caterpillar that changes into a butterfly, right? The caterpillar spins the chrysalis, and then within that chrysalis there's this new creature that comes forth, this beautiful butterfly that looks nothing like that caterpillar that uh, was the root of it. A few moments ago, I didn't tell you the whole story about the transformation of Shoal Canyon from a landfill into a golf course. I only played golf once on that golf course for a very good reason. Why do you think it was? It stunk. Emanating below the thin top layer of the soil was this nauseating stench. As my feet were on the putting green, it felt like I was standing on this bubbling chemical cauldron that was below me. You see, the golf course had been schematized, (laughs) but it had not morphed. The old junk had not been taken out and clean dirt put in. Well, I guess that's where the analogy breaks down, isn't it? Why does Paul locate transformation in the renewal of our minds? Because our minds are a most powerful tool. The King James Version of Proverbs 23, 7 says... As a man thinketh, so is he. James Allen wrote a book uh, with that title, As a Man Thinketh, and he made this statement. The body is the servant of the mind. It obeys the operations of the mind, whether they are deliberately chosen or automatically expressed. At the bidding of unlawful thoughts, the body sinks rapidly into disease and decay. At the command of glad and beautiful thoughts, it becomes clothed with youthfulness and beauty. In other words, the quality or tone of our life is largely impacted by where we rest our minds. John Orberg, who I previously quoted, made this statement. He said, the way you think creates your attitudes. The way you think shapes your emotions. The way you think governs your behavior. The way you think deeply influences your immune system and vulnerability to illness. Everything about you flows out of the, out of the way that you I don't know any more powerful illustration of this than Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. As you may or may not be aware, Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and he then developed an approach to therapy called logotherapy in reflection upon his experience uh, in the concentration camps. And he noticed that there were some people, a few people who remained hopeful even under these rather horrible circumstances and some who gave up hope. And based upon his observation, he said, I noticed that our last vestige of freedom is the attitude that we have toward our circumstances. And he made this very powerful statement in his book. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man. But one thing, the last of human freedoms... To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And there are always choices to make. Every day, every hour, offered the opportunity to make a decision. A decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to the powers which threaten to rob you of your very self. Your inner freedom. The mind is a most powerful organ. Paul co-locates transformation in our minds because it's the vehicle through which we see life. We don't see with our eyes. We see with our minds. And I think this is what Jesus was getting at in these words that, to me, in the past had been very difficult to quite understand. But now I think I'm understanding what he's saying here. He said, "...the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, then your whole body is full of darkness. If then the darkness within you is within you, how great is that darkness?" Let me see if I can make this very practical this morning. The mind is the filter through which the light passes, whether we see clearly or dimly. If there's a lot of smudge on that mind, we're going to have distorted thinking. But if it's clean, will we see clearly? So let me propose this model for us to look at uh, as a part of of our thinking today. Because this is the way I think it primarily works. For example, has you ever said to somebody, you made me angry, or that makes me angry? Is that a true statement? Can someone make you angry? Well, I guess if you're betrayed by someone, anger is probably a natural response. But anger really is a result of stimulus. So you see this instigating event, a word, something is said to you, and immediately we feel the response, anger. But what happens? It has passed through the filter of our mind and our mind is made up of these elements, which we will get to here in a moment. It happened so fast, we didn't even notice that the filter was there and we gave meaning to the to the word and event and anger was the response. But somebody can't necessarily make us angry. It's the meaning we give to it, the filter that's in our mind, that is the emotional response, the belief system that produces the anger. Now, what we want to have happen here is what? The fruit of the Spirit. That's what we want our response to be. That's the goal or end of the Christian life. So our mind is made up of beliefs, attitudes. This should say expectations and perceptions. So I want to look at each one of those so that we can see the content of our mind and how our mind can be then transformed. First of all, beliefs. There's the old adage that scientifically, that seeing is believing, right? We see and then we draw our conclusions from that. But did you know the reverse of that is true as well? Believing is seeing. We see what we believe. And perhaps one of the best illustrations of this comes out of the sinking of the Titanic. What was the belief about the Titanic when it set sail? It was unsinkable, impregnable. I mean, for Pete's sake, it had a double bottom and had 16 airtight compartments. This ship was unsinkable. So for two days, they received warnings that they were in iceberg-infested waters, but ignored those warnings because why? It was unsinkable. And even as they were getting people off the ship, they did it slowly because they still held to the belief that this was an impregnable ship. Believing is seeing. It limits what we see. One of the ways that our seeing is distorted is through what you might call irrational beliefs. We all have them. These are the truths that take up space in our mind for which there's not really a shred of evidence to support them and which you could never live up to. And you can recognize them in you because they start with, I should, I ought, I must. (laughs) And these are the standards that we set which we could never live up to and they judge us. Now, let's take a look at some of these. Uh, that we might find roaming around in our spirit. And I'll tell you about one of mine here in a moment. Some of us may have the belief that uh, I must be loved and liked by everybody. Otherwise, I'm not worthwhile. I must be loved at all times without exception. I must be competent in all that I do. I'll get back to that one in a moment. I must never fail. I have no control over my happiness. Everything bad that happens to me is a catastrophe. I must uh, seek everybody's approval. Add to this list. Maybe you didn't find yours on there, but you've got some. Believe me. And you might be elbowing each other this morning because you may recognize it in somebody else sitting next to you rather than in yourself. Here's mine. I must be competent in all that I undertake and never fail in anything that I do. Otherwise, I will not be worthwhile. I experienced a little bit of that this week as I was putting together this message It wasn't quite coming together, and I felt this sort of inner sense of panic. What will people think if this message doesn't come together? You still have the right to make that judgment. But I really sensed that kind of my worth and value was on the line if this message didn't come together, because everything has to be done competently and right. On occasion, someone will come through the line on Sunday mornings and say to me, you know, you're getting better. And I wonder to myself, how am I supposed to take that? Uh, I think that's a compliment, but my first thought is, better compared to what? Better to compared to that lousy preacher I used to be? I mean, what is it that I'm supposed to take from that? But I know I allow even statements like that to take up space in my spirit because I have to be competent at all times in order to feel worthwhile. I'm trying to get that out of my system. Transformation, in part, means to identify and replace these irrational beliefs with God-centered ones. Like, in Christ, I'm a beloved child of God. My value has unshakable foundation to it. Let's take a look at the second element here. And that's the element of attitudes. Attitudes are our predispositions, aren't they? That we are predisposed to feel a certain way in certain circumstances. You come up to me and ask me about my grandchildren. I am predisposed to be warm and inviting in response to your inquiry. But in other situations and circumstances, there are people in situations which I am predisposed to be negative. And I think we all know that we have those triggers in our emotional response to people and situations because we have come to feel a certain way about behaviors or things that people say, and all they need to do is sort of trigger us because of these predispositions that we have. And the only way to have these feelings change is to consciously think about the person or situation differently. This is the way Charles Swindoll has put it about attitude. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace that day. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the people, the way people will act in a certain way. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. We are in charge of our attitudes. Then the third one is not exceptions. It should say expectations up there on the screen. I think there's nothing more disappointing than false expectations, which we hold on to contrary to all the evidence. I'm sure many of us know the kind of common definition of insanity, right? Doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. But we have that in our relationships as well. People do the same things over and over again, and what do we do? We expect different results and makes for crazy-making, doesn't it? We expect people to be different even though they've given us all the evidence to the fact that they will not be different. The only way is to say, This is the way someone is and to release them from the judgment of our expectations. And then the last category we can look at here is perceptions. Perceptions are the filter through our mind in which we see things. And oftentimes we have minimal amount of evidence about a perception that we have. Again, to go back to Charles Swindoll, the Bible teacher, Uh, he tells a story of perception about himself. He was speaking at a week-long conference, and the first night of the conference, a couple came up to introduce themselves, and they said how happy they were to be at this conference and uh, made the connection. But as the week went on, as he spoke every night, the man of the couple, within 10 minutes of his speaking, would be out like a light. He would be sawing logs. And as Chuck Swindoll looked at him, he noticed an irritation kind of rising within him. And he started to form a perception about where this person probably was. He assumed that uh, he was there at this conference under duress. His wife was the spiritual one in the family, and he was dragged along but didn't really want to be there. So he was making note of this irritation. On the last night of the conference, his wife hung around for a little while and wanted to have a little conversation with him. Chuck Swindoll assumed the conversation was going to be about the fact that uh, She was married to a man that was sort of a spiritual pygmy, and what a difficulty this this was. And then she said the following, "'You see, you are my husband's favorite Bible teacher. He has only a few weeks to live. He's on such a heavy dose of medication that it makes him sleepy. And this was his final wish to come and hear you teach.'" Well, after the woman left, Swindoll said he was stunned and he felt deeply rebuked for the judgment that he had put upon this man because of his limited perception. You see, the mind is the filter through which we see. It's made up of beliefs, attitudes, expectations, perceptions. And this just goes to show you the complexity uh, of our mind. We see through our minds, and our minds create the climate or tone out of which we live our lives. In Ephesians four twenty three, Paul adds a little bit of nuance here, I think, to this whole issue of the transformation of our minds when he says, be made new in the spirit or the attitude of our minds. What's the, what's the spirit or attitude of our minds? Archibald Hart, a Christian psychologist, says the spirit or attitude of our minds is our self-talk. We all know this, at any given time, even as we're conversing with somebody else or sitting here in this sanctuary, there's a conversation that's going on. There's an attitude that we have. There's a dialogue that's taking place that's not spoken. It's all going on interiorly, but there's this second level of conversation. And since I began speaking this morning, some of you have said to yourself, well, that's a good point. I'm going to have to remember that. Some of you have said, that guy is all wet. Some have already checked out and are thinking about the football game. There's a conversation that is taking place in our minds. Got some of you, didn't I? Uh-huh. In other words, we're speaking to ourselves silently. There is a tone that, is, that we can tap into based upon our self-conversation. And this brings us back to the point that I made last week, and that is we need to listen to ourselves if we are going to grow towards Christ-likeness. Self-awareness and listening are very much akin to each other. Listen to your self-talk. It's an indication of your beliefs, attitudes, expectations, and assumptions or perceptions that we make. And take, go back to the things that I asked you to work on last week because that will tap right into those places of, of listening that we need to, to focus on, transformation of our mind. So in summary this morning, there are two laws that will greatly influence the transformation of our mind. We must recognize, first of all, the law of cognition. We are what we think. The good news is we can change our thinking. That is possible to change. That's part of the transformation that can take place. But there's a second law, and that's the law of exposure. And Paul, I think, captures this very well in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. When he says in the message translation, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly things to praise, not things to curse. In other words, our life takes on the tone of what we expose our minds to the law of exposure. So again, John Arberg says, the events we attend, the material we read, the music we hear, the images we watch, the conversations we hold, the daydreams we dwell on, all shape our minds. The law of cognition, we are what we think. The law of exposure, we are shaped by what we allow in. Let me conclude with uh, two core and interrelated beliefs that are foundational to our Christian worldview that serve as a basic framework for the renewal of our minds. These two points will be interconnected, and they should serve as that foundation for the way of of our thinking. First, it has to do with our identity in Christ. I believe that we receive the same identity in Christ as the Father spoke to His Son, At the time of the inauguration of his ministry. You remember that time when Jesus presented himself to John the Baptist. And out of the waters of baptism he came. And and then the father spoke these words. Of all words he could have said to his son. You are my son. Marked and chosen by my love. The delight of my life. Now there is only one natural son of the father from all of eternity. We know that. That's Jesus. But when we put our trust in Christ, we get adopted into the family of God and become the children of God. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verses 15, chapter 8 verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So what difference does that make? Why should that be a part of our frame of thinking? Because of a connected truth. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, "For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Boy, if we believe that, if that's part of our thinking, how much that would determine our attitude towards life. And Paul goes on to say, Why can we be assured that God works all things together for good? Because in Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, there's two events in human history that determine our framework of thinking. What are they? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his death, he entered into that darkness where he took our human sin, and for three days... Was in the tomb. It looked like everything was over. And then the resurrection occurred. The whole new life. Everything was opened up for us then. And that's the rhythm of our life, isn't it? Things die and things come alive. Resurrections follow crucifixions. That's the rhythm of the way God works. Things end and new beginnings start. Therefore, I have to close with this story. Sometimes rituals or symbolic reminders of truth uh, help us hold on to a proper focus. A woman was meeting with her pastor to plan her funeral service. Some days out, some weeks out, some months out. And After they had selected the music and the scriptures and what it was that the pastor might say at the service, she said to her pastor, oh, uh, one more thing. What's that? The pastor said. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Pastor said, well, that's the most unusual request I have ever received for a funeral. And then she explained, in all my years of going to church functions, whenever food was involved, my favorite part was whenever who was cleaning up the dishes of the main course would lean over and say, you can keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew something great was coming. It wasn't jello." It was something of substance, cake or pie. So I just want people to see me lying there in my casket with a fork in my right hand. And I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you to tell them, something better is coming. Keep your fork. That woman had a transformed mind. Let's pray together. Lord, you've given us this very powerful tool as a part of our makeup. You've given us minds, the ability to think, which hold our perceptions that are the eyes through which we see this world, and you call us to be transformed in the renewal of our minds. May we listen to what's going on inside of our hearts and lives and minds And turn them over to be replaced by the things, the truths, the realities that you would have us see life through. Through Christ we pray. Amen.